Who are we? Why are we? How did we get here? Where are we going? What is this world that we live in and where did it come from? These are not just the questions of an inquisitive child. They are the big questions human beings have been asking throughout recorded history. Remarkably, the book of Genesis takes on all these questions in the space of a few chapters. And to address such important questions in such a short space means that every sentence, every word is carefully chosen, every phrase packed with possibility. These are also the opening chapters of a story that spans 66 books. And the early chapters of Genesis provide the foundation upon which the rest of the Bible is built. The symbols and types established here in Genesis 1 define the symbolic worldview of Scripture. And because this text has such depth, there are many different ways that we could approach it, different questions that we could ask of it. Now, it seems to me that for the past 200 years or so, Christians have often been most interested in how the first chapters of Genesis square with modern scientific findings and theories. The Big Bang, the fossil record, DNA analysis, macroevolution, etc., etc., and those discussions are very interesting and they're very worthwhile, but of course, the author of Genesis was writing long before any of these concerns had arisen. Now, that's not to say that Genesis doesn't have scientific value. In fact, Genesis is the book that teaches us that humanity was given this world as a gift, a gift for us to study and to cultivate and to discern and distinguish and name. Now, what is that if not the basis for science itself? Genesis 1 provides a motivation and a justification for scientific study, but still the author of Genesis was not writing to address modern scientific debates. Now, Genesis doesn't tell us who the author is, nor does it tell us when or how it was written and assembled. But the original audience seems to be the people of Israel after the Exodus. And you will find that the richness of Genesis begins to open up if you start to read the book standing in their sandals. Genesis is written to answer their questions, the questions that were important to the children of Israel. Who is this God who has freed us from Egyptian slavery? Why has he called us into the wilderness to worship him? Why has he asked us to build this tabernacle and to ordain priests to work and keep it? Why has he promised us a new start and a new land for us to subdue and to fill? Those are the questions I want us to ask this morning as we come to Genesis 1, to read it as far as possible through the eyes of ancient Israelites, and to read it in light of the rest of the story of Israel, both before and after the Exodus. And when we do that, I think we will find that Genesis 1 portrays the creation of the world as the construction of a cosmic temple. Genesis 1 portrays the creation of the world as the construction of a cosmic temple. And I use the word cosmic to refer to the world itself. 
right? Obviously, we're not talking about a normal temple here made of carved stones and crafted furniture constructed by human hands. We are picturing all creation as a symbolic temple. In Genesis 1, the world that we inhabit is portrayed as a sanctuary, as a place where heaven touches earth, where God and man meet and commune. I think Genesis 1 shows us the construction of a cosmic temple, and this way of looking at our world is meant to form us and to fill us in the way we relate to God, to his creation, to one another, according to his will. So let me pray for our time in the word as we prepare to do that. Almighty God, by the power of your spirit, grant us faith to hear your word and wisdom to understand it for our lives and for the life of the world. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So I think Genesis 1 portrays the creation of the world as the building of a cosmic temple. Now, why would anyone think that? In Genesis 1, we don't see any of the vocabulary we might expect in the construction of a sacred space. Uh, nowhere do we see words like temple or priest or sacrifice or altar or walls or curtains, all that stuff. Why think Genesis 1 has anything to do with temples? And, and I agree, if all we had was Genesis, we would probably miss this completely. But Genesis is not all we have. We have the rest of the scriptures. And when we go on reading our Bibles, we come to the next book, which is the Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, we get some 11 chapters describing the design and the construction of a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a large tent and a, and a courtyard with elaborate decor and furnishings. After he brought them out of Egypt, God gave Moses the plans for this tabernacle, and he told the Israelites to build it, and it was to be their church building, if you will. It was the place where they could go to worship God and to renew covenant with him. And then if we go even further in the scriptures, about 500 years forward to the book of Kings and Chronicles, we find another construction project the building of the temple by King Solomon. And the temple is basically Tabernacle 2.0, okay? It has the same basic layout and furnishings as the tabernacle, but everything is bigger and uh, better and more glorious. It was not a portable tent. It was a permanent structure built from stone atop Mount Zion in the city of Jerusalem. And, and so as you can imagine, there are all kinds of parallels in the Count's of the uh, construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the temple. They are very similar buildings. Those structures very clearly parallel each other. But the interesting thing for our purposes this morning is that there are also all kinds of parallels between these two construction accounts and the creation of the world in Genesis 1. So much so that it is clear that the authors want us to make this connection, to see the creation of the world as the construction of a temple. And I want to show you what I mean. Uh, for starters, the Genesis account is filled with sevens. It's filled with sevens. In ancient Israel, as in ancient Egypt, seven was a significant number. In Israel, it is the number of qualitative fullness, of, of fulfillment, of completion, of perfection. 
Of course, seven is the number of days in a completed week. And you already know that the creation account of Genesis 1 is structured around the seven days of God's work week. Uh, but there are many other sevens involved that you might not notice. In the original Hebrew, Genesis 1 verse 1 contains seven words. Verse 2 has 14 words, double seven. In the passage, the word God appears 35 times, seven times five, the number of power. The word earth appears 21 times, seven times three, and heavens appears 21 times, also seven times three. The phrase, and it was so, appears seven times. The phrase, God saw that it was good, appears seven times. And in Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3, the seventh day is referred to three times in three separate sentences composed of seven words each. All of this is clearly intentional, right? You don't do that sort of thing on accident. The author has taken great pains to portray God's creation as an act of fulfillment, of perfection. It's carefully ordered and structured in this way. It is a holy act, a cosmic liturgy of new creation. Now, where else do we see such reliance on sevens in the biblical texts? Well, we see it in the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Now, I have an outline on the back of the bulletin, and I'll put it on the slides up here as well, where I lay this out. Now, the, uh, I know it looks confusing. Just give me a second. Uh, this is from Exodus 25, 31, uh, 25 through 31, those chapters. In those chapters, we find seven speeches given by Moses, and they are easily discerned because all of them begin with the same phrase, the Lord said to Moses, each of these seven speeches. And in each of these speeches, Moses describes the structures and the furnishings and the ceremonies of the tabernacle. And what's interesting is that these seven speeches of Moses seem to correspond directly to the seven days of creation in Genesis 1. Now, those of you who were in our Sunday school class on Exodus might remember some of this. So there are seven speeches from Moses, and actually speech number one is the longest. It's chapters 25 through 30. And it, that speech is also divided up into seven sections. So you can see there's... Uh, a sevenfold structure nested within another sevenfold structure. So we take that first longer speech and we divide it into seven sections that correspond to the seven days of creation as well. So you've got this double witness to this idea, this sevenfold creation. Uh, and within that first speech, you've got these seven subpoints. And so we're going to arrange these things in parallel and kind of talk about it all together. We see that things begin with raw materials. Moses' first speech speaks to the people about the contribution. They're to bring, the Israelites are to bring gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and animal skins and acacia wood and oil and precious stones, all these things, these raw materials. And they will be used to craft the tabernacle. And this corresponds to the creation of the world in day one. Uh, we also see a golden lampstand described in speech one, and this seems to correspond with the creation of light on creation day one. 
Now, in the second point of speech number one, we see the description of the curtains and the animal skin covering that will form the tent of the tabernacle. These curtains are blue and purple and scarlet. They're sky colors. And they have angels embroidered on them. We also see in speech number two a description of an atonement that must be made by the people of Israel. And the Hebrew word translate atonement literally means covering. And so this seems to correspond to creation day two, the creation of this firmament, this covering for the earth. In the third section of speech one, we see a description of the bronze altar and the courtyard. In speech number three, we have the bronze basin. It's a, a large bronze bowl used to hold the water that was needed for cleansing things in the tabernacle. So in this third position, you have bronze, which is, of course, glorified dirt, refined from the earth, and you have water from the sea. And so these things seem to correspond to the separation of land and sea that occurs on day three of the creation account in Genesis 1. In the fourth section of speech one, you have the command for oil to be brought as fuel for the lampstand and commands for Aaron and his sons to tend that lamp from evening to morning. In speech four, you have the recipe for oil used to anoint the priests and the objects of the tabernacle. So this fourth position, we see oil. And it's used both as fuel for the lamp and as shining light anointing on those who govern the tabernacle. And so these things seem to correspond well with the fourth day of creation, where we have the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, which give light. And they are said to govern the day and the night, just as Aaron and his sons tend the lamp day and night. In the fifth section of speech one, we have a description of the priest's garments, and they wear the same sky colors that are used on the curtains. Now, this is not uh, as easily discerned until you dig into the Hebrew a little bit, but in various ways, the scriptures parallel the priests serving in the tabernacle with angels serving in the heavens, the way their garments are described and the language that's used for them. They are like angels serving in the heavenly places. And speech number five, down here discusses the incense that will be burned in the tabernacle. It's symbolic of the people's prayers rising to heaven. And so this fifth position is not as clear, but basically all these things are things that uh, fill the sky. The, uh, in creation day five, the sky is filled with swarms uh, with birds and the sea is filled with swarms of creatures. And so the priests are like angels swarming in the heavens. The sixth section of speech one describes the consecration of these priests who are called to serve in the tabernacle. It and speech six describes the men who God appoints to build and adorn the tabernacle. Uh, their names are Bezalel and Oholiab. And God fills these craftsmen with his breath, with his spirit, to give them skill and ability to decorate and do the work to which he has called them. And of course, that corresponds to day six of creation, when God creates man, and when God breathes his spirit into Adam to give him life so he can serve in the cosmic temple. 
Finally, in the seventh speech, or the seventh section of speech one, I should say, you have a description of the altar of incense where the smoke will rise to join the glory cloud of God's presence which rests on the tabernacle. And in speech seven at the bottom, you have the command to observe the Sabbath. And of course, these things correspond to the seventh day of creation when God rests after all that he has done. I know that's like a lot of information just thrown out there, for, but you have it in your bulletin, and you can see how this sevenfold structure parallels the seven days of creation. The tabernacle, the description of the tabernacle is written and arranged to match up with that creation account. So as careful students of scripture, we see all this and we ask, is the temple being described as a new creation? Or is the creation being described as a precursor temple? And of course, the answer is yes, right? Both are true. And furthermore, the authors want us to connect these two events and go back and forth between them. Now, not only is there this sevenfold structure here, but there are Hebrew phrases that appear in both the building of the tabernacle and the creation of the world. And I'm going to put these up on the screen as well. Listen to how the work of God in creation in the book of Genesis is echoed later in the work of Moses building the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39.43, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Genesis 2.1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Exodus 39:32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded them. Genesis 2:2. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. Exodus 40:33. So Moses finished the work. Genesis 2:3. So God blessed the seventh day. Exodus 39, 43. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Genesis 2, 3. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Exodus 40, verse 9. Anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and make it holy, and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. Now, all those words that I emphasized in uh, those pairs of verses, those are the exact same words in Hebrew. Again, the author is begging us to connect these two accounts. The, the construction of the tabernacle is a new creation, and the creation of the world is the construction of a tabernacle. Now, as I mentioned earlier, not only are these connections present between the creation account and the building of the tabernacle, there are similar connections made with the building of the temple in the book of Kings and in Chronicles. Any idea how many years it takes Solomon to build the temple in Jerusalem? You guessed it, seven years, right? Seven weeks of years, or a week of years. And what do we know about the seventh year in Israel? The seventh year is called a Sabbath, the year of Jubilee. So you have a week of years ending with a Sabbath year. Sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Not only did the dedication of the temple occur on the seventh year, but it occurs during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And Tabernacles is a seven-day feast. And Solomon makes a speech at the dedication. Really, uh, it's a long prayer to God. How many petitions do you think are included in that prayer? Seven, right? Yeah, seven petitions. Solomon is being portrayed as a new Moses, giving seven new speeches at the building of the new tabernacle. Also, do you remember why David wasn't allowed by God to build the temple, but Solomon was? It's because David was a man of war, but Solomon is called a man of rest. Like God, Solomon completes the construction and he ushers in a great Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the authors of Scripture want us to connect these three construction projects. The creation of the world, the construction of the tabernacle, the construction of the temple. We are to see these things in parallel. The last aspect that I kind of want to point out has to do with the creation of humanity. Because this is portrayed in temple language as well. Now, I already said before that in the construction of the tabernacle, we see that the sixth section describes the consecration of the priests who will serve in the tabernacle. And in the other place, it describes the consecration of the artisans who will uh, serve in the tabernacle. And we said that corresponds to the sixth day of creation, which is when God makes man. Does that mean that Adam is the priest of this cosmic temple? Something that's significant here, after God creates Adam, Genesis 2.15 tells us, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And that Hebrew phrase, those two words there, to work and to keep, the only other time they occur together in the Bible is in the book of Numbers where they describe the work of the Levites in the tabernacle. So not only do we have God building a temple in Genesis 1, we have him placing a priest there to serve and to guard his temple. And we're going to hear more about that idea and uh, Genesis 2 next week from Pastor Chad. But we see this here. Adam serves as a priest in the cosmic temple, and that's meant to give us insight into the calling of God's people Israel. They serve him as his priestly people in his cosmic temple. Again, I know that's kind of a lot of information that I threw out there. I just want you to see that the Bible is making all these connections. And we can be sure that the original audience picked up on these things. We know later Jewish writers noticed all these things and wrote about them. And we can be sure that the first audience grasped this as well, because think about it for a minute. I want you to stand in the sandals of an ancient Israelite here for a moment, right? You have just been freed from Egypt, and in that place you were a slave. And your purpose was to work your fingers to the bone to provide for the needs of Pharaoh, whom the Egyptians worshipped as their god. When your people were growing and multiplying, Pharaoh tried to murder your children, and when the work to build his temples for him was too hard and you begged for rest, he doubled the quotas and he cracked the whips. But God hears your cries and he comes and rescues you with his mighty hand. And then God tells you the story of the world, the way he created things to be. Now, 
as a, as a Hebrew, you know all about building temples, right? That's what you've been doing in Egypt for generations now. You've been building Pharaoh's temples for him. You know how they are constructed. You know the sorts of things they contain. You know what a priest is and what they're supposed to be doing. So you understand all these descriptions and all this imagery. But now Moses is telling you about a different kind of God and a much greater temple. The God who has delivered you is not a pretender who takes advantage of the weak. He is the sovereign creator of the world who gives life to his creation. And you are not meant to provide food for the needs of an insatiable God as in all the pagan religions of the ancient world. Instead, God made the world to serve your needs, he says, to feed you. It is food for you. He does not take from you. He gives you all that you have. The true God does not want to kill your children and keep you under his heel as the false god Pharaoh did. In fact, God wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to multiply. He wants you to fill the earth with your children. He did not make you to be his slaves. In fact, he made you to be kings to have dominion, to rule with him as his sons and daughters. And he did not come to work you to death. In fact, he came to bring you rest. And he values rest so much that he takes a Sabbath himself, even though he never slumbers nor sleeps. He did it to provide you an example that you would be people who not only rest yourselves, but a people who gives rest to others. This is the true God who has delivered you. And the world is his temple, Genesis 1 tells you. And God is the one who built the temple, and not with slave labor, but by his own hand, by the power of his word. And you, you are the priests in this cosmic temple. You are his holy ones who dwell with him in his temple and are called to serve and to keep his sacred space. Your God says to you, Exodus 19:5, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's the picture of the world that Genesis 1 is painting for the children of Israel. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The author of Genesis portrays the creation of the world as though it were the construction of a temple. The skies are its curtains. The heavenly bodies, its lampstand. The mountains are its altars. The sea is its font. And its people are priests who offer the whole world up to God in prayer. It's a beautiful picture. But what do we do with it? First, I think we should say this. If Genesis 1 is so carefully and artfully constructed to portray the creation as God's temple building, it is doing something different than a modern science textbook. Again, I'm not saying that Genesis 1 has no value for scientific study. I think Genesis 1 actually provides the motivation and justification for scientific study. I'm simply saying modern science is not what the author was primarily concerned with. 
He wants us to see the creation as the construction of a temple. Secondly, if Genesis 1 tells us that this world is God's temple, that has implications for how we view God and how we view his world and how we view ourselves and our fellow human beings. If the world is a temple, then its primary purpose is the same as that of the tabernacle in the temple of Israel. It means it must be a place where God draws near to man and man draws near to God. The world is a place where God gives gifts and we receive these gifts with joy. And our priestly task then is to give thanks for these gifts and to enjoy them and to work with them, to transform them by our labor and then return them to God as a pleasing offering to him, just as was done at the tabernacle and temple. And in peace, God then shares those offerings with us. He communes with us. He has fellowship with us. If the world is a temple, then everything God made is not only good, it is holy. And just as God appointed the priests and Levites to guard the holy things in his tabernacle and temple, so God has appointed human beings as the guardians of his cosmic temple. The world is sacred space, and we are to treat it as such. Now, extreme environmentalists will say the goal is to remove man's footprint from the world as far as possible. The Bible says something quite different. It says the world has been entrusted to humanity's care. We are actually called to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over it. But if the world is a holy temple, that tells us that this dominion that we have cannot be a dominion that would desecrate the holy place. It cannot be a dominion that defaces and destroys and wastes. That would be to treat the gifts of God lightly as trifles to be discarded when in reality these things are the holy furnishings of God's house. If human beings are God's priests made in his image, then we should see every human being as though they had Israel's priests' golden head plates on their forehead, the plate that said, Holy to the Lord. In the ancient world, when a new temple was being constructed, the climatic moment was when an image of the God was installed in the temple. Now, of course, for Israel's neighbors, these were statues carved in the likeness of their God, what we would call idols, simply the Greek word for image. But notice that when God is building his cosmic temple in Genesis 1, the image that he places there at that climactic moment is not some golden idol, not some lifeless statue. It is a living, breathing human being. We are the image of God. We are the reflection of his character, his glory made apparent to the rest of the world. And though our fall into sin has marred this image, has darkened that reflection, still every human being bears that image. If we believe that we lived in God's temple and that every person we met was the image of God, would that not change how we live? How could we trample the image of God? How could we deface the likeness of our maker? How could we dishonor and disrespect that which is holy to the Lord? 
Genesis 1 portrayed the creation of the world as the construction of God's temple. And this story was meant to shape and to form Israel. It gave them a vision for who God is and what their relationship to him was. It gave them a vision for what his world is supposed to be and what their role is in that unfolding story. And Genesis 1 also began preparing them for a new creation, for a greater temple, for a new Adam, a great high priest, Jesus, the Word made flesh, who tabernacled among them. For he is the true temple, and he the true temple builder. He takes the torn down temple of fallen creation and three days later raises it new in his own body, in him where God and man dwell in perfect unity. And so God's plan from Genesis 1 has in Jesus finally come to fruition and fullness of glory. And so we continue our worship this morning by giving him our praise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, by your word you created this cosmic temple, and by your word you have resurrected it and will one day restore it completely. Teach us to live in your world. Make us faithful priestly people serving and guarding the holy things and people you have made for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.